0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, January 15th. We have all seen what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Shocking videos, photos, snapshots of a chaotic day. But there are still so many questions, like, why weren't there more police? What were they doing in these videos we saw? Why didn't more people expect this violence? And what was happening behind the scenes? Today, we try to answer those questions. We're telling the story of the Capitol invasion from the outside and the inside. And we're bringing in voices from people who were there, people who have been working to better understand what happened, and people who you may not have heard from yet. Just a warning this episode contains explicit language as well as the sounds and descriptions of violence. And the story of the day, of course, starts with the president. Oh
1: Media will not show the magnitude of this crowd. Even I, when I turned on today, I looked and I saw thousands of people here. But-
0: Noon, Wednesday, January 6th. The place where President Trump is speaking is known as the ellipse. It's this grassy area south of the White House. And the crowd at this point is huge, even by Trump rally standards. 8,000 people here to listen to the president's baseless claims about the election.
1: All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen by emboldened radical left Democrats, which is what they're doing, and stolen by the fake news media. That's what they've done and what they're doing. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved.
0: A little less than two miles away, straight down the National Mall, Rebecca Tan is one of many Post reporters outside the Capitol. And the atmosphere there, the best way to describe it is it, it was a party.
2: They were playing country music. There were people in costumes. There was a woman dressed up as the Statue of Liberty. And there were women and children at this point.
0: Back up the mall by the White House, the president continues his speech.
1: Nobody until I came along had any idea how corrupt our elections were. And again, most people would stand there at 9 o'clock in the evening and say, I want to thank you very much. And they go off to some other life. But I said, something's wrong here. Something's really wrong. Can't have happened. And we fight. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore.
0: And then around 1 p.m., the president wraps up, and people are hyped.
1: Let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I want to thank you all. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you all for being here. This is incredible. Thank you very much.
2: As President Trump's speech ended at the ellipse, we started seeing thousands of people coming from the ellipse toward the Capitol, which is what the president had told them to do, encouraged them to do. It went from country music to sort of USA, USA. USA, 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 USA.
0: These people marching up the street had come from all over the country, New York, North Carolina, Florida, even as far as California, in the case of a 35-year-old woman named Ashley Babbitt, whose name you might now recognize.
2: There is a sea of nothing but red, white, and blue patriots and Trump. And it was amazing to get to see the president talk. We are now walking down the inaugural path to the Capitol. Three million-plus people. God bless America, patriots.
0: And as these people start amassing around the
3: Capitol, the mood starts to shift. Reporter Marissa Lang was there. I was drawn to this crowd of people in sort of the center on the east side of the Capitol who seemed really rowdy. And and this one woman was yelling and saying, get the kids out of here, get these kids out of here. And so I kind of moved closer to that crowd to see what was going on. And she was the first person that I really heard voice the desire to storm the Capitol. She was saying, you know, we're going to take the building. We're going to storm the Capitol. Get these kids out of here. If you're not serious about storming the Capitol, you need to leave. And you could just sort of feel that more people were being egged on and riled up by that message. And then sort of the physicality changed, right? Instead of just standing there cheering, they started to jostle the fences. They started to push. They started to sort of converge around the police line.
2: From the corner of our eyes, we see sort of individuals start to scale and then topple the fence. And this is sort of the first breakthrough of, of that first barrier. And once we have, you know, five, six people who've been over, then there's sort of a click in the crowd and everyone starts to rush. As that happened,
3: you can definitely tell that they realized they could get away with pushing this line. And before I knew it, they were streaming up the steps to the Capitol. I did see some police officers seemingly try to get in their way, seemingly try to hold these barricades together, but they were outnumbered. And once the crowd pushed past them, they kind of scattered, and they let
2: the crowd go up the stairs. At the same time, we have these men again in camel gear who are yelling, forward, forward. Sort of like it's you know an army attack, you know, like something like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings, something
3: like that. My first thought was, okay, we knew they were going to try this. We knew that they wanted to do this. And I thought for sure they'd get on the steps, maybe they'd make it up to that little terrace and they would feel good about themselves. They would feel like they did the thing. And that's where it would end. I had no inkling that they would get the door open. And I think that the moment that I realized that things were totally off the rails was when they opened the door. I was wondering, how did they get that far? Where are the police? I thought for sure that there had to be someone on the other side of the door holding it together or waiting for them and arresting whoever tried to come in the gates. And that wasn't the case.
0: So, Carol, this is the question that so many people who saw what was happening outside the Capitol are wondering. Why weren't there more police stopping rioters from getting to the door of the Capitol?
4: Capitol police had not believed that this protest was going to turn into a siege on the Capitol.
0: That is Carol Lenig, national investigative reporter for The Post.
4: They had been watching the intel gathering from the FBI, from the DC Metropolitan Police. They'd been conferring with their partners, other federal agencies, and there was no indication to them that this was going to be an aggressive, warlike riot. However, what they didn't know is that the FBI, a day earlier in their Norfolk office, had gotten a warning about exactly this a plan to battle and seize the Capitol.
0: At the same time, officials in D.C. were starting to get concerned. The mayor's office, the city police department, police reporter Peter Herman had been hearing for days that they were worried about the possibility for big crowds and for violence.
5: Law enforcement agencies were also monitoring of transportation in terms of bus tickets. They noticed an increase in Amtrak, Tickets into D.C. and a big increase in hotel reservations, which all led them to believe in the weeks leading up to this that this was becoming much bigger than anyone had expected.
0: Those concerns got communicated to Stephen Sund, the chief of the Capitol Police. This is the police department that is in charge specifically of the Capitol building and its other office buildings. Carol later interviewed him about the riot.
4: On Monday, Chief Sund at the Capitol Police is starting to become concerned after talking to some of his partners just about the size of the protest. You know, there had been a Make America Great Again protest in police language, they call it MAGA 1, MAGA 2, and this one was MAGA 3. So there had been protests before, but this one on January 6th, he was starting to see signs that the group was going to be much larger than what they had seen in the past. And so on Monday, he talks with his two supervisors, the sergeants at arms for the Senate and the House, Paul Irving and Mike Stanger, and he asks them if he can activate the National Guard, put them on emergency standby, just so that they can be sure that they are at the ready in case there is something that develops. But his two bosses, who are security professionals, former very high-ranking officials at the Secret Service, by the way, they are operating in a kind of political world. Their bosses are the Speaker of the House and the Senate Majority Leader. And they are not thrilled about this idea of activating the National Guard. And they suggest that he not do that.
5: There was concern from his bosses about the optics of soldiers standing on the Capitol grounds or with the Capitol in the backdrop. And what that would look like, almost like the soldiers or the army was taking over for the seat of power. But even more behind that, they were pointing to criticism they got back in June when they flooded D.C. streets with federal officers and National Guardsmen from various states. They were saying, well, basically, you know, we did this in June and the mayor and everyone else complained and it led to all sorts of problems, it looked like a military takeover of the, of the district. And so we're trying to avoid that. So we want to basically have a, a light footprint this time around.
0: But by 1.50 p.m. on Wednesday, it started to become clear that a
3: light footprint had been the wrong choice. And then there was a stream of protesters just running into the doors of the Capitol.
0: In the videos of this, you see people using riot shields to push back officers. You see people picking up metal bike racks to basically use as battering rams. More doors and more windows are broken open.
2: And then that sends a massively powerful symbol to the thousands of people behind them who may not have thought they were going to storm the Capitol, but are so swept up in the excitement of this happening that they join in. You know, we've seen those images from inside the Capitol of elderly men and women who are not armed, getting in t-shirts and sweaters. They do not look like they were there to terrorize members of Congress, but they ended up having that effect.
6: NPD dropped to uh, Capitol Command, uh, i just advising you that uh, they, the NPD has declared this a breach at the Capitol as well as a riot at the Capitol. Also they're requesting uh, possible help. Mm-hmm.
0: At this point, Sund, the chief of Capitol Police, is watching all of this unfold from a command center two blocks away from the Capitol.
4: He's there watching by video feed and getting radio transmission from his incident commanders on the scene. And as he sees this, he realizes, we aren't going to win this one. We aren't going to be able to hold this line. They had created this huge perimeter far, far out onto First Street. And he knows it's not going to work.
0: And so Sund calls the acting chief of the D.C. Police Department, Robert Conti, and he says, we need help now.
4: I'm paraphrasing here, but he essentially says, anything I got, I'll send it your way. I can send you a hundred right now and more will come.
7: I came down to assess the situation and see if we're gonna make arrests. And uh, I really, I couldn't believe my eyes, what was going on. All our officers and Capitol Police officers had formed a line. There was a bicycle rack. All the people in the crowd are pushed up against.
1: Hold them this way! Hold them
7: hold them. It was literally a, a war zone.
0: That's D.C. Police Commander Ramy Kyle. You'll also hear Officer Daniel Hodges and Officer Mike Fanone. They were all on the west side of the Capitol, the part facing the National Mall where the inauguration is held.
7: We had officers engage in hand-to-hand combat across the uh, fence line. People were throwing water bottles, pieces of metal that they had, I guess, broken off from somewhere with the uh, inaugural stage construction site. I start noticing that the members in the crowd are actually stealing our bike racks. I was fairly certain that we were going to be overrun. It was only a matter of time.
8: Oh, yeah! Whoa! What the They broke through. It's on!
7: We literally fought all the way back to those stairwells. We hit the stairwells. The officers go back up. We get up here to the top. I'm being told it's called the West Terrace Door. All the officers that were there, they kind of refer to it now as the tunnel of death.
0: This tunnel is really a hallway that leads inside the Capitol.
7: So we went inside, we closed the doors, locked them. I believe at the time that we were the only door that was in jeopardy of being breached. I had no idea that there was these other doors. I really thought that it was upon us and those officers in that hallway that we were the last line of defense for the Capitol. I don't know if it was just me being naive, but I always thought that these doors and these windows and stuff were bomb-proof, bullet-proof. However, um, it seemed like within 45 seconds to a minute, the individuals outside were able to break those doors. We basically lined up officers shoulder to shoulder in that narrow tunnel, four to six rows deep. No matter what, we were gonna be the cork in this hole that kept them from entering
8: and um, we we made another stand there. At that point, I had gone inside and um, put on my gas mask. CS gas and OC spray, pepper spray was flying at that
7: point. They're throwing things at us, they're shooting bear mace in us. And of course, like being in that tunnel, they shoot bear mace, everybody's getting it. It basically coated the entire vestibule. We couldn't see anything, totally pitch black.
6: I walk in there and I looked at my partner, Jimmy Albright, who came with me and I was like, man, what the
7: did we get into?
6: The only thing that I could really see was the backs of 20 officers, maybe 30 officers, that looked like they were involved in some kind of like medieval-style combat. Body against body, just crushing like a barbaric scene.
8: As um, officers fell back, I would work my way to the front, and uh, eventually I got to the very front there where you saw me in the in the corner next to the door, and. Um, I just tried to hold, uh, hold them back as best I could. And um, eventually, the, just the sheer numbers and all of them pushing in unison wedged me into the door. My arms were pinned, and um, I couldn't really defend myself at that point. So the, uh, the guy in front of me took that opportunity to uh, rip my mask off, rip my uh, riot baton away from me, started beating me into the head with it. You know, I, I didn't want to, didn't be the one guy to start shooting because I knew that they had guns. we have been seizing guns all day, all yesterday. And the only reason I could think of that they weren't shooting us is that they were waiting for us to shoot first. And if it became a firefight between a couple hundred officers and a couple thousand insurrectionists, then we surely would have lost.
9: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money Plus Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com/podcast. That's m o n a r c h money.com/podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com/podcast
10: the day started with my biggest concern being whether the snack bars would be open into the wee hours of the morning because, with all of the objections planned, the joint session of Congress was expected to go until like the middle of the night.
0: That's Bill O'Leary. He was stationed in the House of Representatives press gallery on that Wednesday. He's a photographer for the Post.
10: I started in 1984. <laughs> which, among other things, makes me the oldest f- person in the photo department. So on that day, I wanted to be as far away from COVID-spreading mobs as possible and requested the uh, Hill as an assignment because it would be so safe.
7: <laughs> Madam
11: Speaker, the Vice President and the United States Senate.
7: It
10: started off exactly as expected, fairly dull and perfunctory. This was just
0: as Trump was finishing his speech before the mob started attacking the Capitol.
12: Madam Speaker, members of Congress, pursuant to the Constitution and the laws of the United States, the Senate and House of Representatives are meeting in joint session.
10: Just about at one o'clock on the dot, with the calling of each state in alphabetical order... Vice President Pence would ask,
12: Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Alabama that the teller has verified appears to be...
10: And if no one objected, then he would say, OK, this is certified, and they'd read the number of electors.
5: The certificate of the electoral vote of the state of Alabama seems... To- Mr. Mr. President,
4: the
13: certificate of the electoral vote of the state of Alaska... The certificate of the electoral vote of the state of Arizona.
10: And within 15 minutes, the first objection popped up.
12: Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Arizona that the teller has verified appears to be regular in form and authentic?
10: There was an objection from Representative Gosar. I rise up for myself and 60 of my colleagues to
12: object to the counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona.
10: And that was seconded by Senator Ted Cruz. An
12: objection presented in writing and signed by both a representative and a senator complies with the law.
10: That forces the session to interrupt itself, and each chamber has to separate and debate it themselves.
12: And report its decision back to the joint session. The Senate will now retire to its chamber.
14: So Arizona was the first contested state. I was down there talking to my colleagues, preparing our defense.
0: That's Congressman Ruben Gallego, a Democrat from Arizona and a former Marine. He was on the floor of the House. And, and what were the first indications to you that something was off or that things were starting to escalate?
14: When they took away the leadership, you know, I didn't see Pelosi get whisked away, but I saw Hoyer get whisked away. And that clearly told me that something was about to go down.
0: At 2.17, Speaker Pelosi and House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer are escorted out of the room by a bunch of men in suits. And just as that's happening, you hear this yell come from the back of the room.
5: The House will be in order. Okay.
15: So a colleague of mine shouted that... And other colleagues were shushing him.
0: That's Congresswoman Veronica Escobar, Democrat from Texas. The shout she heard was from a fellow Democrat. He's saying to the Republicans, this is because of you. And you can hear one of the Republicans yell back and tell him to shut up.
15: And I yelled over and I said, I'm with you, buddy, because I I felt the same way. I felt exactly the same way. It, It was because of them.
10: A reporter showed me, pointed me his phone, and it was the image I saw were hundreds of people crawling over the scaffolding. And that was a little disconcerting because I know where that scaffolding is. It's right next to the front door, deep inside the boundaries, and there were lots of people.
14: A Capitol Police sergeant, I believe, came in and he tried to speak calmly, but I could tell he was breathing heavily. He says at first, people had broken in, they've broken through the barriers. That doesn't really scare us. I mean, we've seen that happen before, different type of protesters. And then somebody else came in and started saying that we needed to lock the doors and lock and everyone lock ourselves in. And at this point, we're still trying to continue with the debate. Uh, I don't think any of us want us to stop, especially for a bunch of thugs and terrorists. Some members of Congress are shouting at the Republicans. We started hearing pounding on the front door of Congress.
10: And then uh, an announcement comes over and said, everybody under your seat, there's a bag. Open that bag. And put on the escape hood.
0: These are basically like light gas masks. They actually live under every seat in the House and the Senate all the time. Kind of like the life jacket under the seats in a plane. And they've got little motorized fans to pump in filtered air.
10: And so there was a confusing little moment when like representatives are looking at each other and they're pulling out these shiny plastic bags with what it looks to me like if you took a dry cleaning bag and pulled it over yourself. There was a lot of, what do I do with this kind of energy going on.
0: The other kind of absurd thing about these masks is that they actually make this sound, like this high-pitched buzz.
10: Imagine if a dentist's drill is whirring in your ear while you're being evacuated from a hazardous situation. That's kind of what it, that's what it sounded like to me anyway.
0: And so in the middle of this very scary situation, the room sounds like it's filled
14: with a bunch of kazoos. And at this point, now people are getting really animated and excited. And the pounding on the front door of the House of Representatives is getting increasingly stronger.
10: When the bags came out, they're not intuitive. It's just a folded up piece of plastic. Representative Ruben Gallego jumped up on a couple of chairs and started instructing his fellow congressmen and women how to open the bag, how to use it.
0: And remember, Gallego is a former Marine. He's been trained in using gas masks. He's gone through drills with real tear gas. And he sees some of his colleagues literally start to hyperventilate. And he's afraid that one of them might actually pass out.
14: I think people were about to really freak out. And we just you can't have freakouts in a very tense
10: situation.
5: We can get order. We can resume.
10: On the floor, there were staff members, and I think even a few representatives, starting to drag furniture from parts of the room, desks and benches, and were piling it up to fortify the main door to the chamber. You know, the door where the president walks through every State of the Union, that's the door that they were assembling outside. When there were a a quick sequence of pops, two in a row, some of my colleagues are convinced that these were gunshots, but I'm still not convinced of that.
0: They could have been stun grenades or flashbangs, they could have been breaking glass.
10: But it caused everyone's temperature to rise. People began to duck, guns get pulled, and everything just sort of froze at that point.
15: What was burned and will forever be in my brain is the image of those Capitol Police officers behind that piece of furniture, pointing their guns through the broken glass of the door with faces on the other side. And they were what was standing between us and that mob. That's when I thought we may never make it out of the chamber.
0: There's more shouting. There are more rioters outside the door. This is when Capitol Police are basically like, we need to go now.
10: The security forces on the floor started moving people out of the chamber and down a stairway.
14: I was one of the last ones to leave to make sure we didn't miss anybody, because that's also a very dangerous thing.
0: Congressman Gallego walks out into the Speaker's lobby and towards a staircase.
14: And as I looked left, that's when I saw a barricaded door, you know, the rioters, the terrorists, the seditionists pounding on the door. I was afraid they're going to break through. And and there were still members trying to get down into the tunnels. And I really thought we may have to fight our way out of this or fight them off enough until security got there. As I proceeded down the stairs, you could tell that capital security had set up a kind of safety corridor to move us through, though it was very hasty. I would tell you at one point I get to a hallway And Capitol Police is is grabbing like two young guys with rifles and telling them stand here and if anybody comes shoot them. Right. And the fact that they have to they're not covering all the sectors for our evacuation is very that was very scary when I heard that.
0: Very early in the insurrection, as all the members of Congress were still gabbling in, it had already become clear that police at the Capitol needed more help. But that help was slow to arrive.
4: At one ten, Chief Sund radios to his bosses, I need emergency declaration now for the National Guard. And you may remember that that's what he asked for on Monday and they denied him. So now he's saying in the emergency, I need the National Guard. It takes an hour for his supervisors, the two sergeants at arms, to run it up the flagpole amid a battle outside to get approval. At 2.10, Chief Sun talks to General Walker by phone and says, I need your help. I have the emergency declaration. Please send those National Guard officers that you said you could send. But... There's a problem. General Walker believes he needs approval from the Pentagon across the water. The mayor is panicking and wondering what in the world is happening on the Capitol Hill. Her aide gets a call going between General Walker, Chief Sund, and the Army Secretary's office. At 2.26, on that conference call, Chief Sund says to the Army Secretary's representative, Lieutenant General Payotte, I am making an emergency, urgent, immediate request for assistance. I need boots on the ground now. Lieutenant General Pyatt, hems and haws. He says, according to multiple people on the call, I'm not sure I like the visuals of the National Guard standing a police line outside the Capitol.
0: Again, this was interpreted to be a suggestion that if the military was standing on the steps of the Capitol, it would look like the army was stopping people from exercising their free speech rights. Except this, of course, was not a peaceful protest.
4: He goes on to say that he feels that they should consider, you know, what the plan is exactly for the National Guard before they send them. This is gobsmacking to both Chief Conti, to the mayor, to the mayor's chief of staff, and especially to Capitol Police Chief Sund. They literally have their jaws on the floor. The Capitol has been breached. The Visigoths are inside. It's 226. And the Army Secretary's representative is questioning whether they should map out a plan or whether the visuals of this are not ideal. Chief Conti says, I'm sorry, sir, are you denying a request for emergency national guard assistance? Lieutenant General Payot says, according again to people on the call, no, 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 I'm not denying, I'm just saying I'm a little concerned. I think we need to make a plan. Again, on the other end of the call, Capitol Police, the mayor, the D.C. police chief are just shocked. They end the call with Lieutenant General Payot saying he'll go and see if he can get permission.
0: And according to what Capitol Police Chief Sund told Carol. That moment was a missed opportunity to get this under control
4: sooner rather than later. You know, the military, if they had been on guard, he said, if I'd had National Guard at the start, I could have held these people at bay and I could have done something until reinforcements arrived. I think Chief Sund will be the first to say he knows he failed in planning for this event, but he also wasn't helped very much by his own bosses, And in the middle of the crisis, the army dithered.
0: Do you think that part of the underpinnings of that conversation was like thinking about the protest from over the summer and that there was sort of a desire to prevent like a similar dynamic from what people had concerns about after the BLM protest?
4: I think there is great concern within DC officialdom and within the Capitol Police that the army's thinking about the optics were shaped by the nature of the protest. This was a pro-Trump insurrection. This was a group of folks who were in favor of the president's message. And inside the army, again, I'm sharing what local officials fear, inside the army, they believed this idea of holding back important reinforcements was out of both support for the president and fear of the president.
0: For the record, Pentagon officials have said that they believe they responded to D.C.'s request appropriately. And more largely, they say that this is not how the National Guard is supposed to work, that they aren't set up to be a quick reaction force like the police. Even as members of the House were escaping through the Capitol tunnels into a secure room, they were not aware of just how many rioters had penetrated the building. And it seems like all of these rioters were carrying cameras, taking videos of themselves marauding through the Capitol, roaming the hallways, breaking windows and doors to let other people in. Some of them even stopped to marvel at the Capitol Rotunda and the huge old paintings. Others start breaking into offices, stealing stuff, trashing stuff. And the Capitol police on the inside are so clearly outnumbered. Some of them try to be nice, like, okay, you've had your fun, now please, can you leave? And some cops try to get physical, but when they grab one guy, a whole bunch of other people start running by them some of them actually start using misdirection as a tactic, like they point people in the direction of a big, important set of doors, and it's only when the people get there that they realize that it's actually the exit. And then there's the video of Officer Eugene Goodman. He was the officer who was filmed running up a stairwell away from this angry mom that was literally chasing him.
4: When I first saw it, I thought, this poor man. He has a baton. He doesn't seem to be willing to pull his weapon. He's being chased up two flights of steps by a marauding band, the first group that's gotten in. They're threatening him, and he's radioing for help when he gets to the top of the second floor steps. And you think that he is in panic for his life, but as it turns out, He is extremely calculated. When he gets to the top of that second floor, he looks left. The mob is below him in a tiny, tiny stairwell, and they're still coming, and he looks right. And he literally leads them, walking backwards, to the right. And it's such a key moment because the Senate is open. The chamber is open to the left where he looked and glanced quickly. And they are still trying to seal that chamber to make sure that no one gets inside. And there are lawmakers still fleeing. And when he pulls right, they follow him. And, you know, that decision, that split second decision may have saved lives.
0: What do we know about what the rioters were trying to achieve when they got in the building? What were they looking for? What were they planning to do?
4: There is a terrifying element about what they were planning to do. At the base, Martine, they wanted to disrupt the affirming of the election of President-elect Biden. Their second goal seemed to be to try to Find particular leaders they didn't like. There were groups of rioters charging through the floors saying, Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? There was someone who yelled, I think she her office is over here, her office is over here. So they were literally trying to either find her or ransack her office. You know, there's an ongoing investigation by the FBI now because people who were in that initial group had zip ties. Those are plastic handcuffs. You may remember that there was a plot that was disrupted by a group of alt-right activists to kidnap and spirit away Governor Whitmer in Michigan. Well, there's a great fear that part of this group's effort, or at least a subset of this group, was hoping to kidnap key lawmakers. There were discussions in this group about lynching Vice President Pence, about finding him and assassinating him. It's hard to know how prepared or organized people were to do that, but there was a noose of symbolism set up outside.
0: And facing this threat, police officers were struggling to understand who was where and which parts of the building had been breached and which had not.
4: When the building was breached, command and control seemed to kind of fall apart because nothing had prepared them for this moment.
0: That became critically important in the Speaker's lobby. That's the entrance to the floor of the House where Congressman Gallego had just passed through, worried that the barricade was not going to hold.
4: A group clustered in a hallway outside the speaker's lobby. Lawmakers had been taken in that general direction for safety as soon as the breach happened.
0: And now the rioters were demanding to get through the doors. They were punching holes in the windows. There's video of this moment and you can see several officers standing in front of the doors. They're just kind of regular police, like no helmets, no riot gear. And they are what's stopping these rioters from breaking through the doors. So there's a lot of yelling. People are basically calling the police traitors, telling them that they need to stand aside. Then, a couple of things happen very quickly. One of the officers standing in front of the door says to the others, they're ready to roll. The video shows that he then gestures at the officers to come with him, and together they step away from the door and they move to a nearby wall by a staircase. And it looks like they've just left the door unguarded. But what you don't see until later is that there are actually other officers coming up the stairs. Officers wearing tactical gear, helmets, rifles, officers who are better equipped to deal with this crowd. But once the first set of officers moves from this door, the rioters feel like they've won. They start pressing on the door harder. They're breaking more of the glass. But then there are also police on the other side of the door, basically trying to prevent the rioters from getting to the lawmakers who are still making their way to the secure room.
4: They're plainclothes officers, agents who are supposed to help protect the chamber, who are barricading the speaker's lobby.
0: One of those agents next to the door points his gun at the doors. He's yelling at the rioters to stop. A couple guys yell, he's got a gun, he's got a gun. But one rioter, Ashley Babbitt, she was trying to climb up to a broken section of the door.
4: But as that plainclothes officer shoots, there is a civil disturbance unit of officers armed directly behind him. They look confused as if, oh my gosh, somebody just got shot. They also look confused about what their job is at that moment. They are surrounded by protesters on the right, they have staff in between them who are trying to flee, and they have their own officers on the other side of the window trying to protect. It looks like such a chaotic moment where there's no clear delineation of where the battle line is drawn. It's friendlies and unfriendlies and vulnerable and unvulnerable, and attackers and police all mixed up in immediate proximity.
3: I got up the steps and I was sort of checking out the open door and I distinctly remember smelling gunpowder. And I thought that was really strange. And then a whole bunch of Trump supporters came running out of that door and yelling, they shot someone, they shot a girl, they shot someone, she's dead. At that point, I think again, you saw some folks who were like, oh, I don't wanna get caught up in something like that. And so some people were, were starting to leave, some people were walking down the steps. But then you also had the opposite effect happen where Some folks who, you know, were out there in their sort of pseudo-military outfits were running up the steps and were running toward the gates. And there was some argument about, should we go in? Do we need to defend ourselves?
0: By now, the Capitol complex is completely under lockdown. The members of the House and Senate who were on the floor at the time of the breach were whisked away to these secret safe rooms. But there were so many other people, legislative aides, cafeteria staff, janitorial workers, journalists, who were not really
16: sure where to go. One of those people was Rhonda Colvin, post video journalist. An officer told. Us to find a room and lock ourselves into it until we knew that the coast was clear.
0: Wait, they, they, they were just like, go forth into the exterior offices of the Capitol and just like find some place to hide, find, essentially?
16: Find a place to hide. They gave us no other direction other than that. They had to run themselves and go respond So they were just quickly telling us the best we can tell you right now is to go find some place and lock yourselves in there and don't come out until the coast is clear. So myself, our videographer, Lindsay, and two other journalists from another network, we just we kind of paired up as a foursome. Other media went in other directions. Everybody just kind of scattered. And we, the four of us, tested some rooms in the basement to see if they had a lock and couldn't really find many. Um, But we did find a room that was an electrical closet in the basement. And uh, I was doing live hits from our live show because we were still on air. So I'm talking everybody through what I'm seeing and experiencing while Lindsay and the two men we were with, the other journalists, were finding material to blockade the door instead of a barricade.
13: RONDA COLVIN, GIVE US AN UPDATE FROM WHERE YOU ARE. WELL, I HAVE MOVED uh, FROM WHERE I I LAST WAS WHEN I SPOKE TO YOU. WE WERE TOLD BY CAPITOL POLICE TO uh, NOT ONLY TAKE shelter BUT TO FIND A LOCKED ROOM. SO I AM IN uh, THE BASEMENT OF ONE OF THE CAPITOL BUILDINGS. I'M I'm JUST NOT GOING TO DISCLOSE WHERE WE ARE RIGHT NOW BECAUSE THE PRESS IS is TRYING TO uh, WORK TOGETHER AND BE SAFE. SO WE'RE HERE WITH ANOTHER CREW. Uh, in the basement. Um, it, we were just told by Capitol Police that there have been, uh, they have heard that there have been shots fired uh, and to go and find a safe place to lock yourself in.
0: Rhonda is talking to the host of the Washington Post live show, Libby Casey. And I think it's easy to forget in retrospect how shocking and confusing these hours were. People inside and outside the Capitol don't know if there is an active shooter. There are reports of bombs. People are just told to run and hide. It's really scary. And you can
3: hear that in Libby's voice. Rhonda, President Trump is staying silent on this. He's not calling for people to stand down. And I have to point out that, you know, we're seeing people like you. I'm sorry. Um, Rhonda, just talk about the role the president's playing right
13: now. Uh, well, the fact that if he is being silent and not decrying uh, the activities that are happening in uh, the U.S. Capitol right now, uh, that that sort of speaks volumes. That you know, if if you've been watching our reporting that we've been doing for uh, the last four years, you can almost guess that things might end up this way. I'm actually not surprised. I'm really not surprised that we're in the situation, as serious as it is. Uh, I, I cannot be surprised at this point.
0: In the office building next to where Ronda was hiding, someone else was also sending out a dispatch from behind a barricaded door.
11: Right now, I am sheltered in place in my office because we have protesters who have stormed the Capitol.
0: That's Congressman Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin. He cannot believe what he is hearing and seeing from the Capitol. And he wants to send a message to the president. So he reaches out to him in the most direct way that he can think of. He posts a video on Twitter.
11: We have got to stop this, Mr. President. You have got to stop this. You are the only person who can call this off. I was desperate and I felt like the only thing I could do, trapped in my office, was to try and communicate the gravity of the situation to the White House, and they were in the best position to prevent further violence and chaos.
0: Gallagher was in a politically challenging spot. He is a Republican. But he also disagreed with his colleagues' attempts to undermine the election results. And in this moment, literally hiding from rioters, he is struggling with how to feel about the president and about his coworkers.
11: There's a cost to lying to people for a long time. And the fundamental idea that Congress was going to change the election results on January 6th was an unconstitutional lie. And you know, I'm not I don't know if that produced the violence, but it certainly didn't help.
0: Gallagher, by the way, was not with the other House members in the secure room. He happened to be in his office in another building when the evacuation started, and the safest strategy was just to shelter in place with his aides.
11: We just started gaming it out. So we barricaded the doors. We had, you know, we looked out the window and quickly ascertained that, you know, it was too high up to survive a drop. So we couldn't leave out the window (laughs) if we had to. We left the window open, interestingly enough, like, as a decoy, if we had then to retreat to my inner office. But then we had what now seems kind of absurd in retrospect, but at the time I assure you it was quite serious. A discussion where on my wall I have my ceremonial Marine Corps sword, the Mameluk sword <laughs> hanging. How big is the sword or like what does it actually look like? I, I mean it's like a curved blade, old school, kind of like, you know, what you'd you'd imagine a pirate might. Uh, a, very, a very like fancy pirate might, uh, yeah. might yeah. carry But I started to think, okay, we have no weapons in this office to defend ourselves. And so I t- took my sword out of its display case and I had this debate with my staff about, okay, I'm gonna use the sword. We have two flagpoles in here. One's the American flag, one's the Wisconsin flag. You guys can use those as like pikes.
0: Oh my gosh.
11: And I know it sounds absurd, but in the moment it was, it was quite serious
0: from his window, Gallagher could only get a little sense of what was happening outside.
11: I mean, I could hear the flashbangs in the distance as the Capitol Police were trying to get control of the crowd. You could sort of see the CS gas in the air.
0: And back at the Capitol, officers with the Metropolitan Police Department were still trying to help Capitol Police keep riders out of this tunnel.
6: So, immediately, I I walk up to the officers or I I kind of rush up to the officers and I start yelling out, who needs a break? Like who needs some rest? As we're kind of like making our way through this crowd, officers were handing me guys that were only being held up by other officers' body weight. You know, we keep making our way through the crowd. Once we passed through and, and Jimmy and I got up to the front at that moment, I remember seeing, like, we weren't just battling fifty or sixty riders in this tunnel. There's like fifteen thousand people out here, and it was so surreal. It looked like some medieval battle scene with all these flags. And the next thing I know, I was grabbed and I was pulled into the crowd. I remember hearing people yelling, you know, we got one, we got one, pull him in. I remember being tased numerous times and then just like beaten, it seemed like from every angle because they were just ripping shit off. You know, they tore my badge off my vest. Guys were like yelling to get my gun, kill him with his own gun. Yeah, I thought like, you know, that's it. Like... I'm just going to get, like, stripped down and drugged through the west front of the Capitol. And I was thinking, like, trying to think in a calculated way, like, maybe I could appeal to somebody's humanity, and I just started... I, I remember yelling, like, you know, I have kids.
8: It's just the zealotry of these people is absolutely unreal. They believe wholeheartedly in something that there is no evidence of. And they refer to themselves as patriots, even while they're besieging the capital of the United States. And they call us traitors, even while they're waving the thin blue line flag and beating us with it, literally in some cases.
4: There are numerous first-person accounts now coming to us from police officers both at the Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police Department indicating that they saw off-duty cops, they saw cops with their badges, they saw military personnel, they saw people with the kind of tactical gear you don't have by going to Dick's Sporting Goods and buying it. (laughs) That these were people who have worked or do work in our national security firmament, and that they had joined in this protest. And that is a fascinating feature of the division of our country. There were, sad to say, police officers who believed they were being hit by other police officers.
0: Police are fighting throughout the afternoon and into the evening to get back control of the Capitol building and the grounds. And while that's happening, members of the House and Senate are locked inside these secure rooms. Can you describe, like, once you were inside, what the mood in the in the room was?
15: Oh, my God. It was a, a sea of humanity. And... Some of that humanity was unmasked, and I immediately felt unsafe inside of the safe room. I'm sure you've seen the video by now of Lisa Blunt Rochester offering them masks, and they're laughing, and they're completely indignant.
14: Yeah, there were some members that actually went over and offered them masks, and they refused.
0: Wow. Wow. Were, were people trying to, like, distance themselves from these members? or?
14: I mean, you, you could only distance yourself so much. It's a, it's a room full of 200 members.
0: People mostly sat, talked to other members, texted their families and their staff, charged their phones. You could still hear that weird droning sound from some of the gas masks. And while they just sat there waiting for the Capitol to be cleared, they also thought about what would happen when they eventually got back to the floor of the house.
14: I know I had a conversation with a Republican member of Congress and, you know, told him that this is had gone off the rails. And, you know, this is, you know, not a coincidence. And he agreed. But, of course, then he ended up voting anyway to overturn the elections of Arizona.
0: He actually agreed. Like when you were talking to him, he was like, yeah, this is. Yeah. Wow.
14: yep." Can I ask Mm -hmm. which
15: congressman
0: this was?
14: Mm, No, it's it's not worth it.
15: (laughs) There was a member from the other side of the aisle wanting to pray And I was furious. I was so filled with rage. I pray sometimes multiple times a day. I very much believe in prayer. I prayed with Lisa Blunt Rochester as we were crouched in the gallery. I couldn't pray with them. I was disgusted that something that I believe they helped cause and potentially— Aided and abetted in creating, they were now saying, "Let's leave this to God," and it. I I just, I was outraged, and I was beside myself between the prayer and the the lack of a mask. I I was really upset.
2: The entire capital grounds have been more or less cleared.
5: How is it that you stand against the people who pay you?
2: There were small groups of maybe 10 to 12 rioters who were still intimidating law enforcement, or when they realized law enforcement was not responding, they would intimidate news crews. What, what agency are you with? What news company are you with? With the Washington Post. Get the fuck out of here! Yeah, you gotta, you yeah gotta, get the gotta, out of here! Move your, you shit shit your shit shit line. So we saw media people with their cameras being chased away or being intimidated, being surrounded and heckled. But after that point, it was really quite quiet at, at, at the Capitol.
0: And at 5 40 p.m., the National Guard finally arrives on the scene.
2: At 7 p.m., on the west side, we see dozens of guardsmen we see dozens of dc police we see people in fbi vests and this is a little bit more reminiscent we think of what we saw over the summer where we had federal officers from like as many agencies as you can imagine um, along with dc police helping to push back protesters at the time but so this happens all at about 7 p.m when there's virtually no one there police officers
3: were at this point, you know, there were some folding chairs on the Capitol grounds and they were throwing these folding chairs sort of out of the way, but also at the protesters. They were pushing them. They were being very aggressive in in getting them to retreat. And these protesters were getting in their faces and yelling at them and calling them traitors. They were chanting traitors, traitors at the police. And even though they were dispersing, it seemed like they were doing so with the promise that they would come back. A lot of them were yelling, you know, we'll be back. One man was saying that he's gonna come back next time and bring his rifle. It certainly didn't feel like the crowd believed this was over.
0: On the night of Wednesday, January 6th, the House and Senate went back into session, finalized the results of the presidential election, and declared Joe Biden to be the next president. Eight Republican senators and the majority of House Republicans voted to block the results of the election. Stephen Sund, the chief of Capitol Police, stepped down last week, two days after the attack on the Capitol. This story was produced by Ted Muldoon, Rennie Svarnovsky, and me. It was scored and mixed by Ted, and it was edited by Maggie Petman. Special thank you to police reporter Peter Herman, who made it possible for us to bring you those stunning interviews with D.C. police officers. You also heard Marissa Lang and Rebecca Tan, who were outside the Capitol, Bill O'Leary and Rhonda Colvin, who were inside the Capitol, and national investigative reporter Carol Lennig. Also, some of the tape and revelations that you heard came from our colleagues Dalton Bennett, Kate Woodsum, Libby Casey, Amy Britton, and Emily Davies. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Murray Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Sprenowski are associate producers. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.